This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Bernardo Batis for New Books Network. Today we have Inside IBM, Lessons of a Corporate Culture in Action by James W. Cortada, published by Columbia University Press in 2023. James Cortada, thank you very much for being with us today at New Books Network. My pleasure. And James Cortada, who's uh, already been a part of this podcast series, I'll put the links in the below for, for the other uh, contributions. He's currently a fellow at the Charles Babbage Institute at the University of uh, Minnesota. And he worked for 38 years at IBM, as well as publishing a very large number of books. He's a, a reference, friend, and mentor. So it's always a pleasure to have him to be able to discuss your, your work. So this is a very interesting um, book in sense that you, you deal with, with, with a company that you work for very long, a company that you have produced a, a, a very large and comprehensive corporate history, but you, you try to map how to deal with the with corporate culture and from the outset you make the point that this is something that historians that certainly business historians have not been able to deal with or have ignored or have um, recognized but not looked at it in a systematic way so what was the motivation for you to try to to produce this um, large volume dealing with the with the issue of cor- corporate culture. Well, there were uh, uh, there were several reasons. <clears throat> First place, uh, today's management, senior management, and also uh, business schools uh, teach about the importance of corporate culture in shaping uh, the activities of a firm. Uh, and so they explain what you should do. But there's very little case study work to, to demonstrate how that has worked in the past. And yet, uh, certainly in the 19th and 20th century, there were a lot of companies that recognized that uh, how they went about their business was as important as what business they were in. Although they didn't always call it corporate culture. Uh, they talked about corporate families and and corporate values and things like that. But in the 20th century, a lot of that thinking got systematized by the academic community. And now it's become fashionable for companies to uh, participate in trying to control, manage, implement, whatever you want to call it, their corporate cultures. However, there's an enormous amount of ignorance out there about what is corporate culture? It's it's a feel-good uh, idea, but tactically, what is it? What does it look like? Well, we need answers to that because there are best practices out there. 
that were developed uh, a long time ago and have worked effectively or ineffectively, depending on how you look at it. So you look at these companies that have been around for over 100 years, like IBM, General Motors, GE, Philips, Volkswagen, and so on. And if you dig into their histories, you find that they have corporate cultures and oftentimes are organized. The second reason for getting involved in this is that employees of these companies in their memoirs and oftentimes in their retirement uh, presentations talk about the power of corporate culture in addition to the effectiveness of the employees. I've met thousands of people at IBM and maybe thousands also of its customer individuals. And they all speak about the power of IBM's corporate culture. So that, that was, if you will, the secret sauce behind much of IBM's success in the 20th century, but it had not really been explained well, uh, particularly by uh, academics who had never worked in IBM or GE or General Motors. So in fairness to them, uh, they had not been in the arena to feel it every day. So it would take somebody from within the empire, if you will, within the company to do that. And since I was trained as a historian, I'd already written a, a number of books about IBM. I said, you know, maybe I can do this. Let's see what happens. So this was an experiment uh, to see if I could explain in a way that made sense to uh, other colleagues in the company that this was in fact a truthful account of what the corporate culture looked like. And being a businessman, I, I said, well, if we do this, it has to be uh, a tactical study that says, well, how do you go about doing this? What, what is it that you're supposed to do? Why? How do you do it? And how do you measure it right at the street level? And that was the purpose of writing this book. So that became, if you will, the, the second reason for doing it is that the employees themselves are saying uh, the hot sauce here, the secret to IBM success wasn't its fancy computers or its very smart people, although smart people were part of it. Uh, and that in fact was part of the culture, uh, the meritocratic culture. So I decided to just try it and see, see what would happen. And, uh, and, and that's what you now see is, is this book. If there was something else that needed to be explained in the sense that culture is a difficult construct. Culture is, is, is elusive. Um, some people think that they have been able to nail it down. Other people think that it's impossible to, to measure it or to define it. It's certainly a, a contested term. Corporate, corporate culture would be even more because on the one hand we have, we don't, you know, there's no agreement of what is culture. And then defining what, what is a business is something that, again, not a lot of people have taken um, a lot of thought. Sometimes, you know, very often businesses are just defined as something that exists, whether they are a collection of contracts, where it's a, uh, a group of assets, a group of people, whatever it is. But, but you know, people are not satisfied is one of the other things that are put aside. But so bringing these two things together makes it even more, more difficult. The, uh, a short way of defining corporate culture, I could be wrong, is the way that we do things here. And some of that is because of the group of people that are coming together. Some of that is also because of the environment that you're in. And, and you mentioned this in the book of, of how it comes out or, or IBM's culture emerges from, from the US from a very particular way of doing things around Watson senior and and his um, upbringing and his uh, um, learning the business at NCR and that sales culture and, uh, or, or way of doing things at, at NCR that he brings some, some some of that to him and then of course is his his and he and Watson's juniors ideas uh, and people buy into these ideas and people buy into this way of behaving and that's what you're explaining 
in 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 different ways and and using uh quite a bit of of different sources um and and you try to go into this material culture and the manifestation of culture so before we go into the the work itself could you tell us about how you thought about the sources that you were going to use and how you have used uh this this wide array of of inputs to to write your story uh it was a difficult task because uh if you think about corporate culture i think you've explained it uh, very well you have the issue of uh, values and beliefs you have the issue of rituals and you have the issues of what tactical steps do you take to implement a point of view the culture and so as a historian i say well what's the paper trail look like what's the documentary evidence well you can always have easily find the speeches made by the chairman of the board saying you shall do this and we believe in that that was easy that's available <clears throat> call it propaganda call it whatever you want but it's speeches and it's all written down and it's in the archives and in publications the second piece the rituals you want to document that and most rituals in a company are are written down it's just that they're oftentimes not kept as as uh records in, in a corporate archive so for example if you have a an annual party christmas party at your office to thank everybody what record is kept of that maybe an email uh, invitation we're having a party on the 19th at five o'clock uh, for our annual meeting well that's a classic ritual that you would have in a corporation to build bonding and so on well in ibm they they would have such an event uh uh every year where or every two years or three years where the chairman of the board would show up and make a presentation well when you have the chairman of the board show up at your christmas party it's no longer a christmas party it's a family event you have uh uh, uh agendas you have uh, people moving the chairman aboard from from the airport to the place and back and forth well nobody saves that documentation well i found and collected a bunch of that documentation so i could document that ritual whether it happened in colombia or or in new york or paris so i there are paper trails so i began to collect that material menus for example they'd be published menus it would explain exactly what was going to be served that that evening and then over on the left hand side of the menu would be the agenda for the evening you know the chairman of the board will be speaking and so on and so forth well so as i looked at all the components of corporate culture i said can we find a paper trail to document this thing because it you can't just have Jim Cortada say, well, I remember, you know, we, we did this all the time. You know, that's what the memoirists do. And I have maybe 50 memoirs that have been published by uh, IBM people. And they, and they all talk about these things over and over and over and over again from one book to another. But there's no documentation. So I, I hunted down documentation. What, and I knew as an employee what that documentation ought to look like. There ought to be a, a printed menu because every one of these things I went to had a printed menu. So we looked around, who's got a printed menu? So here, one here, one there, and so on. And the next thing you know, you got a, a folder full of uh, printed menus of these uh, Christmas parties that uh, no archivist or historian even knows exists. Well, you can do that across the entire company. Then there are the daily, uh, daily sorts of activities that you can document, such as uh, training programs. I argue in the book that uh, the reason why the culture remained as vibrant and consistent around the world is that managers were chosen to implement it. And so they were trained. Well, where are the training materials? Well, I have three sets of training materials. One for the 1950s, another one for the 1960s, and another one for the 1970s, and they're almost the same. And I went through the same experience myself. So actually, I have four because I have my own training materials personally. And they're all the same. So you can see exactly what they were trained to do and how to do it. And then a professor might not know that every employee in the company also has a documented performance plan that's agreed to in January, is written down, says you're gonna get these things done every year. 
there's always a section in their corporate culture. Well, I got a bunch of those. And then the appraisals, which are always documented at the end of the year, says you did do this, that, and the other thing. So you could link their training, their uh, uh, performance plan, and their appraisal. And there you have a documented uh, trail that shows that, in fact, the company had some very specific things they wanted to get done, and it got done, and it measured your performance against it, which is part of the culture anyway. Uh, so I began to collect this kind of material because I knew it existed. So I had it, I found other uh, IBM people who had it and so on, and over a period of, I don't know, 30 years, collected quite a bit of this material so I could, if you will, prove in a court of law that this in fact was the case. And so you see the quotes in, in the book, you know, this performance plan said this, and, so, and you could see the connection back to the training program. And it didn't matter whether it was Asian, European, or American, the practices were essentially the same. So that also led to uh, my whole uh, study of uh, material culture, which is a fancy way of saying what archaeologists do. You know, an archaeologist goes out in the desert, and he digs up a pot, and he looks at the pot and he says, oh, this is a part of a religious ritual, whatever it is. I do that, and I go, oh, this is a coffee pot. We know what that is. We we drink coffee all day long in our industry. In fact, in the in the computer industry, uh, you're not a powerful, strong person unless you can drink black coffee all day long and all night long. Because the culture in the IT industry is that when you're working on a project, you work 24 hours a day, and therefore you need stimulants. Drugs won't do it, but coffee will, and it's socially acceptable. And so. Uh, uh, as an archaeologist, I say, well, let's take a look at that coffee mug. What's the coffee mug have to tell us? Well, they always they were like billboards of propaganda. You know, uh, IBM means service. You'll see that on a coffee mug or think, you know, IBM's uh, a logo. You'll see that on a coffee cup. So I, I did the same thing the archaeologists did. And what they do with these objects is they treat them as three-dimensional footnotes. Unlike the archivists who might only collect paper, paper, I had to collect ballpoint pens, coffee mugs, uh, these little things that you have on your credenza, you know, they collect dust, you know, like computer chips and, and plastic blocks and so on, boxes of them. But they all had messages to deliver. And that's how I could document uh, at the street level what was going on. Because on the one hand, uh, the most successful companies with corporate culture had a point of view that was driven by the senior management of the corporation, IBM, all these other companies. But at the bottom, you have all these activities that go on, which are can be documented because they leave a paper trail or a bunch of broken coffee mugs or, or whatever, old telephone directories and so on. So if you apply the methods of the cultural anthropologists, of the archaeologists, and of the historian, then you can reconstruct uh, a company's corporate culture. And hopefully by the end of the book, at least corporate culture at IBM is no longer a fuzzy term. It's pretty precise, very explicit. Now, if readers agree that I did that, then they hopefully have a model of what they can do if they want to write about the corporate culture of another company or a university or a government or a government agency. The ones that have done the best job doing this so far have been the military in the Western world. There's probably been more good work done about military culture and so on. Uh, and those are very useful to read if you're going to write a history of, of a company uh, or a government agency. They're very helpful. So it's this combination of uh, of documentation that's both flat and and uh, three dimensional, plus models uh, practices taken from other disciplines that allows us to construct a a corporate cultural history. And what came out of IBM was that it was like a city. It was like writing a, a history of a city. About a million people worked for IBM from the beginning of time to the present. 
that's a nice sized city. It's got neighborhoods. In my case, it's the research division or the large systems division or the salespeople. You know, they have the different barrios, right? Uh, different uh, neighborhoods. But they have a downtown section. You know, it could be a, a divisional headquarters or a corporate headquarters or a sales office. So there's a physicality to it all, the, the neighborhoods uh, like that. So it was very much like writing a history of a city or communities. Absolutely fascinating to do that. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It, it is. And it is fascinating to see how you bring these different uh, descriptions of things that you would expect, such as, you know, the, the attire, the, the blue suits. Uh, <laughs> And, and where they, they, they fit and, and, and the pictures, which is something that, that probably historians are more used to introducing in their work, less so things that you haven't mentioned, such as the pin, you know, uh, tie pins or, or coffee mugs or things that go on the, on the, on the desk and, and the significance of, of that to, to represent, um, you know, what, what the, in the long term, what the organization is thinking, but there, there, there is something that when you joined the company in the mid 1970s, that culture was already formed. So you you had to try to explain how it came about. But what I'm what what I'm trying to point out is that these cultures take time to develop. And you're making the um, implicit argument, sometimes not that implicit, that having a strong um, corporate culture is is a foundation of success. And so, what I'm pointing out is two things: this this link of causality between corporate culture and and and, and success, and the other which is the issue of the acorns and where oaks will, you know, large oaks will, yeah, yeah, will, yeah. will come. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I take it that it's very difficult or, or one of the things that makes the book, at least uh, for, the, for, for the academic in me, very attractive is thinking of how do you go back and, and try to reconstruct not only what the culture is, but how it, it is created and how it evolves and, how these material things help you to to map that, um, but I think that for the practitioner, this link of causality between culture and success would be more more interesting to explore. And 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 you're making that argument that that I think or, or that as long as the culture was there, or once that the culture started to to change or, or lost fit with the environment, um, that's when problems really got. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, I was very fortunate in that <clears throat> I came into the company when it was already baked, it was cooked, and it was effective. Okay. Uh, and by the way, that took 40 years. That's one lesson is that when you're trying to shape a, a culture in a company, you have to play the long game. So you have to decide right up front, what behaviors do you need in that company to align with the business strategy? And if you don't get that right, you're going to fail on the business strategy side. Okay, let's just be blunt about that. IBM was able to get it right because they already brought in very senior executives who were highly experienced at the start of the company from NCR, one of the best run companies of the 19th century. And they played the long game. Decade after decade, they stuck with the same uh, game plan in terms of developing the culture. So they they essentially, I was the third generation to be exposed to that. 
Uh, so I saw what it looked like at its prime. And therefore I knew what questions to, to ask in my research and what materials I needed that we described a little bit earlier, okay? So that's part of it. Then I saw the culture change as both the industry changed and IBM's ability to respond to the changes were sometimes good, sometimes ineffective. And, and the company got in trouble and, and then recovered and then got in trouble again and recovered and so on. And what that taught me was that, uh, that what got done in the first half of the company's history teaches us what we need to do in the second half, which is to align our culture with what we're trying to get done as a business and don't let it happen by accident. So when you take a look at Facebook, for example, today, and you go, oh, they got all kinds of problems over there. Uh, I now look at Facebook and say, well, some of the problems was that the culture wasn't aligned with what they needed to do. You don't name your street Hacker Avenue or Hacker Way if you are now a major pillar of society. That's irresponsible, right? But Zuckerberg didn't know that when he was 19 years old and starting a company. So let's be fair to him. You know, he didn't understand that, uh, at the beginning that you got to develop a corporate culture. On the other hand, at the start of, the, of IBM, you had a 42-year-old executive who came in and ran the place who already had 20 years experience. So he knew that he had to spend most of his time on that. So looking at the second half of the company's history where there was a lot of change in the culture, I learned a couple of things. Number one, it does take a senior executive focusing this full time. And I, at the end of the book, have a prescription for any senior executive who's running a company today, read the last chapter and forget the rest of the book. Just is based on empirical evidence. That's so. That's number one. Is you got to be focused. It's your know, number one job as a CEO. You can always hire people to come up with a business strategy and so on, and hire MBAs to do that. But you got to get the culture right, and that's hard. Uh, number two, uh, you've got to make sure that uh, people are well educated and trained on what it looks like, and hold them accountable for it. You can get fired at IBM very quickly for violating the corporate culture. It's just like the Pope will fire a priest if they violate canon law. I mean, he's not going to be polite about it. I mean, the guy's going to be out the door in two or three days as soon as the lawyers have gone through the, uh, the paperwork, right? So you've got to walk the talk. You can't just uh, tell the story. And then, of course, uh, once I started realizing that the company culture was changing, uh, I began to collect documentation for that. Uh, but at the end of it, I also learned that the glue that holds it all together are the basic beliefs, if you will, the theology of the company. And you cannot destroy that. Once it's there, whether it's a good theology or not, it's there. Even in bad times when it may not be fashionable to believe something, they kept it. My favorite example of that is, you know, for everybody knows about the thing signs. Uh, it's the company's logo. Well, it started, it was introduced into the company. My suspicion is it was introduced the first week that uh, Watson Sr., who basically created the modern IBM, uh, came into the office because he had, he had invented the thing sign back at NCR and he, and he brought over a lot of NCR practices instantly into IBM. He was sh shameless about it. He just brought it in, you know? Uh, so in the 1980s, uh, it, the think signs uh, went out of fashion. Uh, well, actually, uh, more in the 90s, I should say, more in the 1990s. And so you didn't see them on the walls or anything else. People put their little think signs, we all had them, uh, away in their desk drawers. And then in the early 2000s, they all came out of the closet, all came out of the drawers, and they're back. And that's why, for example, in, you know, in the book, you can see there's one, the yellow one there. Everybody had those. 
and uh, and they just came out of nowhere all of a sudden. They, they wind up on people's credenzas and and so on. In the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, we used to give those away to customers. So if you went into a data center uh, that had IBM equipment, you'd see a big old think sign on the wall or on a shelf or on top of the uh, the mainframe, and they embodied the values, a set of values in theology and and. You cannot get rid of those. So it's very important in the beginning to instill a value system that is consistent with uh, the business objectives of the company. Now, I want to import, uh, bring in an important point. In the 1980s and 1990s, it was very fashionable for corporations all over the world to prioritize stockholder value and do everything they can to improve the value of the stock and the dividends paid at the expense of what everybody else used to do before then, which was pay attention to investing in employees, pay attention into investing in customers, pay attention to investing in the communities where you had factories or many employees uh, and trying to do good by society. That became out of fashion in the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s. In other words, for a whole generation of management. Because most, most people in business work for 30 years and then they're out and then you get, somebody else takes over. Uh, well, starting around, the tw around 2010, it, it, people were pushing back on that and saying, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. It's causing too many layoffs. Uh, you're shutting down factories in, in North America and shipping them work to, uh, China, if you find out 10 minutes later that it's cheaper to do the work in Vietnam, you shut down the, the Chinese factory and it was, it was a mess. And, and people began to complain. And now we are in a situation where it seems like everybody's complaining that uh, companies aren't uh, uh, behaving themselves. So what compounded the fact is that uh, a lot of the multinationals became so big that uh, they were going to affect their societies and their economies, whether they want to or not, just simply because if you have 100,000 employees or a million employees, you know, there are a lot of companies out there that have a million employees. Uh, in the United States, it's Walmart. You know, it's so Walmart's culture is very, very important because it affects my city, uh, the one down the street, uh, the one next door in my hometown where I grew up, and so on. So these are now parts of the social pillars of society. And so we're now back to the situation where corporate culture counts. And what does that mean? It's values, it's behaviors, it's ability to uh, clean up the, uh, the environment or reduce crime. It's the economic welfare of a community or a whole region or a, or a nation, right? Uh, so you have all these issues now and the only way you can address those effectively <clears throat> is to have a corporate culture that is aligned with the interests of a series of stakeholders and not simply a few stockholders. And that's where we are today. And that's why the whole issue of corporate culture now is more important than it has been for decades, certainly in my lifetime. Some, something that you also mentioned uh, and, and make a, a, a very interesting case is the role of reputation and, and how it fits with other, um, let's say, the manifestations of corporate culture. I mean, you talk about products and marketing, but you say, well, but listen, it's these this intangible things of reputation, which are really important to, to make things work and you haven't talked about reputation or could you talk a little bit about yes reputation? yes uh, I, I think you're absolutely right it's an important point uh reputation translates into trust so let me give you a simple example 1976 i sold my first computer cost maybe eight hundred thousand dollars uh and it was going to change how a lot of things were being done by my customer. Now, in 1976, 
I was very thin. I looked like I was 18 years old. In fact, I grew a mustache so I would look like I was of legal age. Now, if I came to you, look like a teenager, and said, I want you to spend $800,000, and I want you to change how you do a whole bunch of things around here to do it in a new way that if you screw it up, you're going to lose your job. And yet, the gentleman acquired the computer. Why? Not because Jim Cortada, this little teenager-looking fellow, said he should do that. It's because the great IBM company uh, backed him up and would make it work. And that's where you get the old term that floated around in the industry. Nobody ever was fired for recommending IBM. It was trust. IBM would make this work. IBM would not produce a product that was stupid. They knew that I couldn't bring a proposal forward without having uh, had the technicians in IBM and my management approve of the proposal because they had dollar amounts in this. You know, this is going to cost you X. You know, so I'm just a delivery boy, you know, delivering the message. But I also established a relationship with the person and said, you know, I behaved in a certain way, the IBM way, whatever that means, you know, it's part of the culture. And so it boils down to trust. Now, you have to build trust through reputation, which means not only at the individual customer level, but within the industry, within the profession of the customer and within society itself. So really from the earliest days of the history of the company, it mapped out various things to do that would build trust. First, they obeyed the laws of the nations that they operated in, which is difficult to do because at its height, it was 176 countries. Today, it's maybe only 150, 160, who knows? But well, uh, you had to obey the laws. You had to honor your commitments. If I tell you I'm gonna do something, even if it turns out to be the stupidest uh, recommendation, we're gonna honor it if our customers still want us to do that. Gotta do it. And we all at IBM went through that, that moment of truth at one time or another in our careers. You had to do that. The third thing you had to do is you had to participate in shaping policies and practices in the in the society in general. That's why you see uh, uh, for over a century, IBM people are involved in standards committees and in uh, lobbying for certain types of laws or for uh, making presentations at scholarly conferences uh, and then publishing vast quantities of materials uh, that uh, help to shape the conversation about what computing ought to be, look like, and how to use it, and what have you. So it's a multi multifaceted activity that was as important to the senior management of the company as values and personnel practices. Coming coming back to the coming back to the book. You have you you kind of front loaded the 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 book and and give if if I remember correctly seven recommendations or seven takeaways that that people can get through in the in the introduction and then you explain and support this throughout the the book. Would you care to go through them? Well, let me um, or several some of them. them? Yeah. yeah, let me go through uh, several of them because uh, we've already discussed uh, some of them. Yeah. Some of them. So number one is obviously you got to establish a set of values uh, that are consistent with what you're trying to get done as a business. And, and number two, you want to make sure that you are consistent in promoting those year after year after year after year. Uh, it's a senior executive's most important job. And not enough executives spend time doing that. So they got to change their performance plan, if you will, their, their priorities uh, to do that. Uh, they have to communicate this to the world. Uh, customers, society, regulators, legislators, influencers, professors. And they have to do it also with their employees. Then they have to train their employees 
on how to implement the culture. Otherwise, we're right back to where we were at the start of this conversation where we say, well, corporate culture is fuzzy and so on. And it feels good. No, it's got to be explicit and you got to implement it and you got to then turn around. Another recommendation is measure it. Hold people accountable and then measure it. How do you know that you were successful with trust? Is it just by surveying customers? You know, do they like IBM or not? Who knows? Uh, that's only one little trick. You know, there are other things that you do. And, and a lot of it is explained in the book. Uh, so these are lessons and recommendations. If you want to have a, a company that's going to be around for a long time, and there's no reason why you shouldn't aspire for your company to be around 100, 200, 300 years. I mean, a lot of them out there that, that last that long. But they all last that long because they have a way of doing things. In fact, I use the term the IBM way uh, throughout the book. It's a quote uh, that's been used by many people inside of IBM to describe how we do things or how they did it. Uh, so that became yet another another recommendation is, is you have to hold people accountable, measure the performance, be explicit. And you have to do this, all these things forever. And when you violate one of those, uh, then your culture begins to collapse and be replaced with another one. Uh, and the beautiful thing about the IBM case study is that it's been around so long that these pieces of advice uh, were tested at IBM where it was successful and deviations proved to be unsuccessful. And then when you brought some of them back, they were more successful or different. So you actually have a case study. This is like when, when the pharmaceutical company comes out with a new pill, uh, don't just tell people to take the pill. You, you wanna know what happened to 100,000 people who took the pill over the next 30 years, right? And you come back and say, well, it worked and then we had to adjust it and then now it works and, you know, and everybody's being cured. Well, that's kind of what this thing is all about. Now, one of the things I did at the beginning of the book, uh, I, I violated uh, a canon of uh, historiography. Normally, when you write a history, you start in the beginning. In 1800, such and such happened, and then you end the book with uh, uh, 2023. Well, I didn't do that because uh, I wanted this book to be read by uh, uh, contemporary managers and not just simply historians. So I started the book with an analysis of what IBM's corporate culture looks like today, the good and the bad. I mean, I was not shy. Um, I, I was very candid in, in what works and doesn't work and uh, what other people have said, economists and, and business professors and so on. So that if uh, you were the chairman of the board of a company, you wouldn't have to read the rest of the book if you didn't want to. You could just read that chapter and say, all right, here are the seven recommendations here. Uh, here's uh, how IBM uh, did well and screwed up and, and, and what have you and redid well again to invent a new phrase. Great, you know, I just read 30 pages. I don't have to read the rest of Cortado's 460 page book. Whew. Thank you. Uh, and if he wants to go global, he reads the last chapter and says, all right, if you wanna have the same culture, that you have in your country and another country, read that chapter. This is how IBM did it. And it'll probably work for you as well with minor modifications. Wow, I just, so now for 60 pages, I uh, just saved you from reading 400 pages. But the 400 pages in the middle is the history that takes you down through the path about what, what do you have to tell your people? Uh, what performance plans look like? How you appraise them? How you train them and so on, all the all the gorpy things that middle management then you know the the chairman of the board has read the first 30 pages he says we're going to do this here uh at the xyz international company and he then hands the book over to his middle management says implement it well then they got to read the the 400 pages in the middle to get an example right and then of course they're going to be smart enough to figure out how to modify that obviously to to meet their needs uh so that's what I mean when I say that I sort of violated uh, a rule there because I was both a businessman and a historian. 
And so I think that's a contribution. It is, it is, it is a contribution. It is a very interesting book as far as the case study is concerned and as far as the attempt to reconstruct this culture in the long term is and, and, and the challenges to, to do it, even, even from an insider that knows, you know, where, where to block things, it, it, it is quite challenging. So, so it, it's, it's a very interesting book in this, in this sense. But some might say that you are promoting a way of doing things, a way of doing business more around transact uh, relationships and less about transactions. Is that the salesman on you saying, well, you know, when, when we have relationships, we did well. And when we try to go to transactions, that's when things didn't really work. Oh, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, there may be a little bit of both uh, in there. There may be a little bit of salesman in there, but my experience is around the issue of trust. Uh, but let's recall that in 2019, I published a, a large formal business history of IBM, where I very explicitly explained across several chapters how the relationship between IBM and its customers changed in the 1980s. I was very explicit and very tactical. Up to that point, for example, you didn't buy equipment from IBM, you rented it. Mm -hmm. And when you rented equipment, it meant that both IBM and the customer had to interact with each other all the time. They were codependent. But then IBM in the 1980s decided, oh, let's raise a lot of money so we can build more factories. And so we're going to stop renting equipment. We're going to sell you equipment. And I want to tell you, I was there. And within a question of six months, the relationship between IBMers and their customers began to be noticeably different. Because now you were selling hot dogs or, you, you know, if there were PCs or you, you were trying to sell me a car. And you could care less once I drive off from the parking lot with a brand new car. If I never see you again, that's okay. Uh, whereas if you rent it, I want to make sure you didn't uh, crash that car, the, you know, wreck the car on the highway the following week because I'd have to replace it. So that relationship is profoundly important. Is it going to be a relationship or is it going to be a transactional uh, affair? I think that's crucial. And I make no apologies for it. If you're dealing with expensive capital goods, which is essentially what IBM did for over a century, trust, we come back to that, means that you have to spend time with each other uh, to know how each other works. And you have to be codependent on it. I mean, for example, in 1978, when just to pick a year, when, when uh, you rented equipment from me, it was as important to my management to know what my customer thought of me as it was for them to know how much I sold. And by the way, they would go out and call on my customer, say, well, how was Jim Cortada this year? Did, did he help you? Well, what can we do to make Jim better next year? You know, uh, 1988, they wouldn't make that call. You know, they look at the numbers and say, all right, Jim brought in $3 million worth of business. That's what we asked him to do in that company. Fine, move on. There's a difference there. Um, now, I dealt with the whole issue of the transactional thing in the earlier book because that was, that's business strategy. That isn't corporate culture, that's business strategy. Um, and we'll we'll argue for the next fifty years whether that was a good move or not. Uh, IBM people, are, particularly who lived in that period, are divided on that issue. We know why the company did it. They want to bring in a lot of cash. Uh, technology was turning over so quickly they couldn't depreciate it fast enough. You know all the usual accounting stuff. 
Uh, then there are others that say, yeah, but it, it, it broke the relationship. It, we didn't have the intimacy with our customers as we did before. On the other hand, I sit here in 2023 and I see that we have the same customers that we did 30, 40, 50 years ago. Every large business is an IBM customer. Was then, is now. They may not buy as much or they buy different types of stuff, but it was then, is now. So it's early for the historian to conclude whether that was a strategic error or not. In the book, um, in 2019, I tried to be neutral, although it was really hard because I I lived in both both worlds. So you have to say, well, you know, that was a uh, early 20, 21st century historian looking at, at IBM and a historian looking at IBM 50 years from now will, will obviously have a different perspective, but that's fine. You know, that's what we historians do. Uh, so in this book, this new book, uh, it's it's less of an issue for me because I, I felt that I had covered that before. That's why, for example, in this book, you're not going to hear about how great IBM computers were and how we sold them and all that, although I have pictures of products in there, but almost like a cultural anthropologist does. He says, now look, look at this uh, picture from IBM of, uh, of an IBM System 370 Model 158. What does that picture show you? Oh, it shows a highly organized, integrated system. That's the message they're trying to deliver. We're adults in the room. We're, we're not just, you know, cabling together a whole bunch of silly little machines. But and then I do show you a picture of that having been done in the 1940s. Uh, where things have Queen Anne legs or, or look like something out of a science fiction movie and because the company was in transition from one technology base to another and trying to get the look and feel. And then, and then they hire a designer who says, get rid of the Queen Anne legs and the wrought iron and let's, let's make all the machines look consistent, you know? And so that's part of the culture and the messaging. So different, different way. Different way. Two, two, two more questions, if you, if you, if you may, and this, these are primarily reflections. Would this story be different if it was told by, or to what extent this story could be different if it was told by somebody that was not American or was not a man or was, you know, in a different, in a different um, life? Well, not life, but. What I'm trying to say is that you fit the the, the um, stereotype in in a way of of the IBM. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What sort of story would have been told if the, from a different perspective from somebody that doesn't fit exactly that mold, whether because of gender, because it has lived outside of the United States and is joining the company, it you know that that sort of perspective. How, how, I mean, it's different. It will be difficult for you because you don't have that perspective, but you know, I'm asking for a speculation. Well, actually uh, we can go a little bit further beyond speculation mm -hmm. uh, because there are a lot of memoirs that have been written by Europeans who work for IBM. And they and the American memoirists are fairly consistent in uh, how they viewed the company. Now, this is important because one of the arguments I make in the book is that the company was very effective in implementing a similar culture around the world. One way to test that is to see what they had to say. So uh, I have the memoirs of a South American who, by the way, lived to be the oldest retired IBMer. Uh, and I interviewed him at the age of 100 to verify that his memoirs still reflected his views and his mind was just as clear as yours and mine. Uh, half the conversation was in Spanish and the other was in English. Uh, you would have thought that the guy was raised in Ohio. You know, uh, the values and many of the practices uh, that these other people had were similar. Uh, there have been some uh, histories written uh, of uh, other parts of IBM. Uh, there was a wonderful history written uh, of IBM France by a Frenchman. 
by a French uh, journalist. Uh, there have been several books written on uh, IBM Germany by Germans. Uh, they tend to be fairly consistent with the Americans in discussing the culture, which became evidence for me that says, this is how the company was effective in implementing the culture around the world. Now, in each case, however, you do have variations, but in my mind, they were trivial, although they were often banded about as if badges of honor. For example, IBM had a, a uh, policy that no alcohol could be served at any IBM event. It was pretty rigorously uh, enforced in the United States until the late 1980s, so for the first 70 years. On the other hand, the Brazilians, they like to drink beer. And I have a picture of a bunch of salesmen at an IBM event in the 1920s going, salute, you know? Uh, and I know that uh, when I would go to the cafeteria in the IBM building at La Défense in, uh, in Paris, they served the little cartons or little bottles of uh, red and white wine in the cafeteria, which would never happen in New York City or in Endicott, New York or uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And, and, and people would say, yes, we serve wine here. Isn't this great? You know, uh, it's a sort of a little bit of, uh, you know, rebellion against the orthodoxy. You know, uh, it's like the person who cheats and doesn't, uh, didn't fast before uh, uh, going to uh, communion in the Catholic Church. Right. Just, <laughs> we're going to get away with a little something. And it was understood. Right. So you have some uh, deviation to honor uh local uh, local customs but in my mind they were trivial and the reason for it is that people around the world bought into uh, some basic values and let's talk about those because uh, they transcend the world uh you're going to be honest and tell the truth uh you're going to provide the best customer service that you can uh ibm is going to uh, give you uh, good work and uh, employment for life, right? Uh, you're going to do the best that you can in any job that you have. Now, who doesn't like those values around the world? Now, imagine if you actually implemented those. When somebody deviates off of that, they're upset personally or they're upset institutionally, right? So there were some universal features here. The other thing that, that happened too is that uh, IBM uh, moved people around quite a bit from one country to another. So if you were an American executive and you were headed for the top of, uh, top of the business, you were gonna spend a year in Japan or a year in, in Paris or somewhere just so that you could not only distribute the culture and manifest it, but also you could understand yeah, the French are different than the Germans, and the Germans are different than the British, and, and you, you need to understand that. But they would also bring these people over. So, for example, I, I had employees from Germany, Ireland, Japan, and we would all interact together. And by the way, at IBM, we had one language. All international corporations have one language that's official. You know, the Catholic Church has had Latin, uh, IBM had English, Phillips, I guess it's Dutch, and so on. So you, you can see how this thing works. So, and language always carries culture. Now, were there variations? Absolutely. In fact, you can find it here in the United States. It was a gentleman, African-American gentleman who wrote his memoirs a few years ago, where he said there was, uh, he found uh, prejudice against African-Americans uh, in IBM. I personally didn't. Uh, see that, and I, and I worked in parts of the United States where if it was going to exist, I was going to see it and understand it because I was a Southerner myself, and so I could understand it. Uh, you know, I don't need somebody to explain it to me. It's built into the culture. I didn't see that very much. Uh, uh, it was, in my mind, almost a non-issue, but this gentleman thought there was. Oh. So a little bit of it there. Now we do have some gaps in our knowledge. Um, 
that I chose, and I explained in the book, uh, that I chose to not deal with because I didn't have enough material. And oh, by the way, this book could have been twice as long. Well, let's let's tell that. So one big gap, women, the role of women. And most large American and European corporations hired men and women in subservient roles, such as working in the kitchen or being secretaries and so on, whatever, clerks. Uh, and that all changed in the second half of the 20th century for everybody. Uh, but the story of women at IBM uh, has not been told yet. Bits and pieces. The corporation will brag about, oh, you know, we hired women in the 1930s and our first executive was uh, appointed, a female executive was appointed in 1942 and so on. But that's, you know, it's propaganda. Uh, what we really don't know is how many women there were. I kept finding evidence that women were all over the place, but not enough to tell a story. I mean, we had uh, female salesmen during World War II. Well, yeah, because all the guys had gone off to war and IBM still had sell stuff. And so they were women. I had their names. Well, nobody's ever written about them. But now, uh, you know, half the sales force is women. So that story hasn't been told. Now, what do you do about uh, minorities in different countries? If you're in 150 countries, I guarantee you get 150 different sets of problems. So if you're in France, what are you going to do by North Africans, right? Uh, if you're in Germany in, uh, in the 1930s, what are, gonna, what are you going to do about Jewish uh, IBMers? Now, that piece of the story I did tell because basically IBM pulled Jews out of, uh, out of Germany and Austria if, if they wanted to get a leave. They all ended up in New York and they got jobs. And the same thing uh, when Castro took over in Cuba, you know, there a bunch of uh, middle class IBM people and they, and they were going to be in trouble. And so they got pulled out, you know, went to IBM's international operations and so on. But these are bits and pieces of the story that have yet to be told. And you have to multiply it against 150 countries. Now, Interestingly enough, in the 1970s, uh, a, a gentleman at IBM who was in personnel did a number of studies of uh, attitudes of uh, IBM people in different countries. And then he eventually left IBM and became a sociologist and wrote all kinds of books and what have you about uh, ethnic uh, and cultural changes from one country to another, uh, which all started by interviewing tens of thousands of, uh, of people at IBM over, over a decade. Uh, and, and he knows that there were some, some subtle differences, but the subtle differences were more uh, culturally driven by the culture of the country and not the culture of the company. French like to go to lunch at exactly noon. And they will stop their work that has nothing to do with IBM. They're going to go out to lunch. You just know it. Whereas in the United States, somebody would run downstairs to the cafeteria, grab a sandwich and a coffee, and run back up to his desk and start doing email. You know, that has nothing to do with IBM's culture. That's that's the national culture, right? And a Spaniard will will turn off his laptop on August first, and you. Just don't send him an email for 30 days because it's just going to sit in his inbox. It has nothing to do with IBM. You know, it's just vacation. <laughs> it's it's the way that it works. So one one last last question. So what have you learned from from doing this book when you look back and and see the work that that uh, went into it? I don't think companies pay enough attention to the proper management and implementation of corporate cultures. Uh, number two, on the first day in the life of a company, when you have two or more people, a corporate culture is born. I'll give it an hour, an hour after birth. So if you're getting together at eight o'clock in the morning by nine o'clock, a corporate culture has been born. Nobody knows it. 
but it happened. Now, what are you going to do with it? It's just those are two big things that I, uh, that I learned. Uh, a third thing is that there are a lot of very good things that one can do to implement effective, honorable, decent corporate cultures around the world, regardless of your ethnic or, or national uh, background. There are some universal characteristics. I also learned that uh, the history of these companies can teach you a lot about what to do that's relevant today. And that ultimately is why I wrote the book and why I was willing to take the risk of failure since this had not been done before. But at my age, I don't have tenure to worry about. I'm not going to get fired by some university. Some other professor isn't going to criticize me. You know, I don't care. It was a risk worth taking. And uh, I'm happy with how it turned out. We'll see how others feel about it. But it was aimed at both the academic community, but also the practitioners, the people who have to run real companies. That's what I learned. Just a few lessons. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for, for your time today. This was um, James Cortada, Inside IBM. Thank you if you have listened to us for the first time at New Books Network. Do subscribe if that is the case. And if you're a subscriber, please do leave a comment or rank us. That is always very helpful. Until next time, this was Bernardo Vázquez Lasso. <laughs>